this book is incredible. If you have one, if you would just pull it out, open it up to any page, any page, just open it up and just touch the pages, look at the words or if you have access to an online um, version of the Bible. It's incredible that we have access to these words. It's incredible that we get to look at this anytime we want. In the 1400s, the Gutenberg Press was invented, and it was a miracle in the story of humanity because books now could be duplicated not just by the the written hand, but they could be mass-produced, duplicated. And the very first book that was printed on the Gutenberg Press was the Bible. There are still 49 original Gutenberg Bibles that have survived throughout the years. And they are valued at about $12 million each. And over 600 years, we continue to print more and more of these and continue to print more and more of these. This is the best-selling book of all time. And what, what amazes me even more than that is that it continues to be the best-selling book every year. What what that means is that it's not that the Bible's cheating compared to, you know, the, the, the part seven of the Harry Potter series, that, well, it had all this, you know, it has been around for so many years. No, every year it's once again the best-selling book. Every year right now, it's estimated that there are about 100 million Bibles that are printed every year. Now, this particular copy that I have is not valued at $12 million. Unfortunately, that would, that would be cool, but it's not. But in a sense, it's worth way more than that. Most people in the United States, regardless of what they believe about what is written in here, have high regard for this book, very high regard for this book. And I'm confident that everyone here in this room, you know this is a very important piece of literature, the most important piece of literature in human history. And you have copies of it, or you at least have access to multiple copies of this most remarkable book in human history. And yet, we don't read it. That's remarkable. That's amazing. We're starting a series today, and we're going to do this, look at this for the next five weeks. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at why we tend to not read the Bible. Why is it? So we're looking at these five reasons. Why do we tend to not read the Bible over these next five weeks? And so if you are someone who does read your Bible, you regularly read your Bible, I mean actually read it. I I don't mean you have a devotion in the morning where it has one scripture on top and then uh, cute little stories underneath there. there. Because that's that's not actually reading the Bible. That's like someone having an NHL video game and telling everyone that they play hockey. It's not the real thing. It's great to have a devotional thing, read a verse and do a devotional. It's fantastic, but it's not the same as actually reading the Bible. So if you currently read your Bible, fantastic. This series is not for you. 
Hopefully, however, in this journey, there will be something that you learn about this value that you, this book that you obviously already value to a very high degree. But for others who, who are not currently reading the Bible, the hope in this journey is that we can identify why and we can do something about it. Would you pray with me? Father, I am thankful for the gift that you've given us with the, with the word. God, I pray that, that whatever is, is, is blocking us from, from encountering you through Scripture, God, that you would help us to just burst through that. I know in my journey, there are seasons where, where the waters flow, and, and then there are seasons where it gets backed up for whatever reason. And I pray, for whatever reason, the, the, the river of, of Scripture is backed up right now for any here in this room or any who can hear, God, that, that you would allow us to just blow through that and let your word be all that you've intended it to be for us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, many of us, we purchase things on Amazon. And what happens when we do that, of course, is that we end up buying something that was manufactured in a country in another part of the world that does not speak English real good. And so what happens is they have to create instructions for whatever that product is, so they do their very best to, to translate it or make it available uh, to us. And so uh, I know you've all, you're all familiar with these. I just want to share just a few of them with you. And so here's one uh, instructions when opening. It affixes from the under by the left hand, it has, and the bone on is opened like drawing circle by using the right hand thumb to the last minute. Well, that's easy. I mean, that's clearly understandable. Okay, here's something else. Operation. This stepping meter can only count correctly under the flat plant. Under the following condition, the stepping meter can't count correctly. Number one, moonwalk, so it's not good for Michael Jackson or fans of Michael Jackson wearing sandal. Number two, when walking in the tricky condition. Okay, that's my favorite. That's all we need to see on that one. Okay, next one. This is more of a religious thing. Before use, please read this instruction for God's sake and keep well. Uh, here's something else has to do with, I think, a fire in a building. If you're unable to leave your room, call the reception. Seal all ventilation vents and door gaps. Open the window if too much smoke in your room. Expose yourself in the window. I'm confident this was not what the original intention of this. See, what happens is when we read instructions like that, it has an effect on our confidence level in what the product is or where whoever has designed or shaped that product. It, give, it, it affects our confidence in the product or it affects the way we view the company that has provided this product or written this set of instructions. If they can't get these words right, if they haven't valued the language enough to get the words right, how am I supposed to trust in this company or in this product? And so sometimes that's the way some people react to or have an encounter with Scripture. How can I trust it if I have identified that there are some inaccuracies in Scripture that maybe you have been informed of so-called inaccuracies by a college professor or by a skeptical friend of yours or by a simple internet search? It doesn't take long to identify and surface some inaccuracies uh, within the Bible. And so what do we do about that? If this is the document from which I am to understand my creator, 
and why humans exist and what kind of relationship I am to have with that creator, if that's what this document is for, and this is really the only document to provide us with clarity on, on the meaning of life, etc., what happens when I've identified or been informed of some inaccuracies within the Bible? How can I trust it if there are some parts of it that seem questionable? So this is what we're talking about here on week one. And the first kind of piece, I'm going to look at three kind of sections that people might be concerned about in terms of inaccuracies. And the first section has to do with the origin of the Bible itself. How do I know that, that this book that I get to open up in front of me and, and the, the words that I look on these pages, that this is the actual Word of God? Because it's quite the journey that it took to get from when these events happen to in my lap right here in front of me. For example... We do not have access to any of the original documents. The, the, the actual original letters that Paul wrote, for example, to the churches, we don't have access to any of those original documents. All we have access to are copies or perhaps copies of copies. The oldest documents that we have are about a hundred years, were written about a hundred years after the original documents were written. So we don't have access to the original documents. We have ancient documents that were written at least 100 years after the original events. And these documents were written in ancient languages that require translation. And so how do we know if this was a good translation? How do we know if it was translated well or not? Who's to say if it was translated well or not? Currently, in English, we have about 450 different versions of the Bible. Well, there are reasons that there are different versions because it involves interpretation and translations, etc. For example, Matthew chapter 18, verse 11, there is a verse in the King James Version that reads, For the Son of Man is come. That's not a typo. That's actually the way it's written. For the Son of Man is come to save that which is lost. Matthew chapter 18, verse 11 in the NIV Bible, which is the Bible I typically teach out of, is that. It doesn't exist. There is no verse 11. See, now some of you might want to look it up. There's a verse 10, and then it jumps to verse 11. Uh, verse 12, there is no verse 11. So it, it, how can I trust a document when there are some pieces of evidence that say, how do I know that what I have in front of me is the real thing? So first of all, I just want to address the authenticity and how the level of trust that we can have in this document in, connected, in connection with the ancient manuscripts that we actually have. And in order to do that, I want to compare it to some other historical human documents. One of them, the first, off, the first one is, um, is, uh, is the Tetralogy by Plato. So Plato's Tetralogy was written approximately in 400 B.C. The oldest copies that we have of that document are from 900 A.D. That's a difference of 1,300 years. That's a long time. It was written in 400 A.D. The oldest copy we have is 1,300 A.D. And we have about seven copies of that book. The number of copies is important because the more copies we have, the more reliable 
the ancient sources are. If you only have one copy, there's nothing to compare it with. If you have two copies and they're different, you have, you have no idea which one is right and which one is wrong. But when you have seven copies and six copies say one thing and one says something else, you can lean towards the six were statistically, uh, you know, that, that's the right answer. Okay, so here's one example. Another example is Homer's Iliad. It was written approximately 900 B.C. And we have ancient documents going all the way back to 400 B.C. That's a span of only 500 years compared to the 1,300 years of Plato's writings. And we have 643 copies of the ancient manuscript of Homer's Iliad. So, in a sense, it's way better than, no, hang on, please. In a sense, it's way better than Plato's tetralogy, but it is, um, uh, it's way better, but there's still some, some questions there about, uh, uh, you, you know, it, it, there's still 500-year difference between the actual writing and the documents that we have. But still, even with all of that, no one questions the authorship of the Iliad. No one questions whether or not Homer wrote it. No one says, you know, I'm not sure if it was Homer or if it was his son Bart who wrote the Iliad. And so it is what it is. So now moving right along. Now we can add the, the Gospels, which is part of Scripture. It's just the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They were written approximately 50 A.D. So, you know, within a few decades of Jesus' death, they started writing and, 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 and gathering this information. And then the oldest documents that we have... Again, we do not have access to the originals, but the oldest that we have are about 150 A.D., which is a difference of 100 years, still a long time, but compared to some of these other documents, not nearly as long. And we have about 5,500 copies of these ancient documents, 5,500, and there is tremendous agreement among the 5,500 documents. Every once in a while, when you read Scripture, there'll be a note in your Bible that says some manuscripts don't have this verse or have a different word here. That, 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 that's the honesty of the translators to say, as we've looked at as many documents as we can, there is some discrepancy here. And so that's the honesty as a, as a part of that journey. So that has to do with the origin of the, the documents. With regard to the translation, there's a spectrum of the translation of scriptures into English. And that spectrum on the left is more of a word-for-word translation, and on the right is more of a paraphrase. And so all the 550 different English versions of the Bible fit somewhere on this spectrum. To the far left, for example, we have the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. This is the most popular uh, translation of the Bible for Bible scholars in seminaries and in theological education. This is the, the translation of choice because it is a word-for-word translation from the best and, a, and, and oldest manuscripts of the books of the Bible. It is word-for-word, so it is clunky to read. It is a very difficult read. It doesn't flow very well, but it is the most accurate. On the right side of the, of the spectrum we have the message, which was written by one guy, Eugene Peterson. And I'm sure he had help along the way, but essentially this is this brilliant theologian who wrote a paraphrase of Scripture. And and it is much easier to read, but it is essentially an interpretation of verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter. And it is terrific. 
but it is on the right side of this spectrum. What I tend to read from, typically read from, is, is the New International Version. It is a very popular translation of the Bible. It was created by over 100 scholars, and essentially what they were trying to do in the, in, with the NIV, I'm not saying the NIV is better than everything else, I'm just saying where it fits on the spectrum, that what they tried to do with the NIV is, is translate it more thought for thought than word for word. Instead of every word, they kind of said, in general, what, what's the thought here as it flows into the next thought? Different translations are going to fit in different places on this spectrum. Are you having fun yet? Okay, I just feel the energy in the room here. Okay, because so, one of the issues that we have in terms of, of, of inaccuracies in the Bible has to do with the origin. How do I know that this book I have in front of me is the actual Word of God? And a second issue with regard to inaccuracies is, is the internal inconsistencies within Scripture. Is in, that you, sometimes if you read the Bible and you're paying attention, you read and you go, hey, wait a second. That doesn't fit with what I just read. It's, how can that be in the same book as what I just read over here? And it happens right off the bat when we start reading the book of Genesis. We say, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to start at the very beginning. And between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we have two different versions of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, we have the birds and the trees and the animals being created, and then humans were created. In Genesis chapter 2, it's the other way around. What? In Genesis chapter 1, man and woman were created at the same time. In Genesis chapter 2, the man was created, and then God took a rib out of the man and created another being. And then man looked at that being and said, whoa, man, and then she was named. And then there were man and, and woman. At the, in the, so there are two different stories right off the bat. How does that, how does that work? And if you're paying attention to the, to the Ten Commandments, the mighty Ten Commandments that are found in Exodus chapter 20, and that's the list that we are familiar with. That's the list that you perhaps have memorized or tried to memorize or remember reading on a wall somewhere or whatever, Exodus chapter 20. But there's also a list in Deuteronomy chapter 5, also written by, Mo, by Moses, that is slightly different. And then in Exodus chapter 34, after the tablets break, and then a new set of tablets are, are, are printed up, and then there's a new writing of the Ten Commandments on the tablets in Exodus chapter 34, they're significantly different from what we find in Exodus chapter 20. Whoa, where does that fit? And then later on in the New Testament, are you with me? Or we still, we're still having fun. And later on in the New Testament, we have two different versions of the story of King David, Israel's king. One version of the story is found in First and Second Samuel. Another version is found in First and Second Chronicles. In Second uh, Samuel, there's a story about David and his men defeating 700 charioteers of the Ammonites. And then that same story is told in First Chronicles, except it says David and his men defeated 7,000 charioteers of the Ammonites. One says 700, one says 7,000. It's like the real number versus the pastor number. You know, if you ask a pastor, how many people were there for Easter? Oh, oh, it was great. The real number was actually 700. But the pastor says, I don't know, it's about 7,000. It was great. We had a great Sunday. It was fantastic. And then, but it doesn't stop in the Old Testament. You get into the New Testament. And even with the amazing story of the resurrection, there are some differences in the versions of the story. The New Testament begins with the four versions of the story of Jesus, all contain the story of the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
In the book of Matthew, the first people to discover the empty tomb were Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary, it says in the book of Matthew. In the book of Mark, it says it was the two Marys plus a woman named Salome. In the book of Luke, it says it was the two Marys, not Salome, but a woman named Joanna and some other women, it said. And then in the book of John, it says it was only Mary Magdalene. And so all four Gospels tell a different version of what happened at the resurrection of Jesus. How could they not get that detail right? How could they be so different? There's one woman, two women, three women, or multiple women. How can I trust this if there are differences as I'm reading it? So first of all, in terms of the internal inconsistencies in Scripture, what we have is the Word of God. And this, this takes a level of faith, but it, it is inspired by God. Every word, every phrase, every verse, every chapter, every book is inspired by God. It is protected by God. It is provided to us in the form that we have, and I believe God has, has watched over that process and has protected that. But it has been written and copied, etc., by humans. It is inspired by God, protected by God, but humans have had their hands on it in the process. And so, as a result, there have been some mistakes. When I was in school, we used to have to write out our essays by hand. And so, we had a rough copy that was, had all the arrows and the scribbles and the, all that stuff. And then we had the final copy where you did it double-spaced on a piece of paper and you, you tried really hard to not... And so it was double-spaced. I only get like 130 pages, words on a page. And yet at the end of one page, I was pretty excited if there was only one or two mistakes. It's pretty hard to get through a lot of words without making mistakes because I'm human. There are 750,000 words in the Bible. And there's not just mistakes in terms of, co- of, of have handwritten copies. There are also mistakes in terms of the printing process as well. In the 1600s, there was a mass produced, there was a mass production of the Bible that they didn't realize until after the production that there was a mistake in the printing found in Exodus chapter 20 where we find the Ten Commandments. In the verse that says, thou shalt not commit adultery, they forgot the word Not. This is one of the most popular versions of the Bible that has ever... There is a, a, a commandment written in Scripture that says, Thou shalt commit adultery. Whew. Now, even it's possible to look at the mistakes or possible mistakes or how, you know, how did God... What was God's role in that? And how did God, should God have protected that or whatever? It's possible to look at all that and stir up a, a distrust, perhaps, in Scripture, that, that some of these inconsistencies lead us to the place of, of um, being more concerned about the authenticity and the, the, the strength and the value of Scripture. But it's also possible to view some of these inconsistencies, these internal inconsistencies, as, as evidence of authenticity, which is how it lands for me. I mean, why, over the years, have people not fix some of these discrepancies? Why over 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years have people not 
fix the difference between 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles? The difference between the story found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are those things, why are those things not aligned so that we wouldn't have an issue with it later on in, in later generations? Because anyone who has been a part of this journey from the very beginning, God has protected the process because people who want to translate and, and manage and deal with Scripture, they want to preserve it as, with as much authenticity as possible. They want to protect as much as they can with this journey to say, that's what it said. Whether we like it or not, whether it makes sense with what just happened in the previous gospel, that's what it said, and we want to protect that. And I love that about Scripture. To me, that's even more endearing, because if people along the way were not willing to make changes in order to fix some of these discrepancies, then it, it elevates my confidence that they have also not made changes to fix the story of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. It hasn't been fixed or, or tampered with. In as much as we can, it has been a journey of trying to protect what the original manuscripts had said. So we get to decide. It is a faith journey to say, has God protected this? Or have humans negatively impacted this? Okay, third, third piece. There's, there's the origin of the Bible that becomes an issue for some. There are internal inconsistencies. And then finally, there are external inaccuracies. That we, we read something in the Bible that does not fit with what we know outside of the Bible. For example, for most of human history, we believe that the world was flat because the Bible said that it was flat. The Bible also, when we read the genealogies in Scripture, it, and we look at the numbers through the genealogies, it looks like we have a, an earth that is, that is about 6,000 years old from creation to where we are now. And yet scientists are incredibly confident in how long it took for just the Grand Canyon to be carved. It took millions of years for that to happen. So that, how do we manage what we see in Scripture with what we see outside of Scripture in science? So you look at the story of Noah and the ark. Where did all that water come from? If it covered the earth, where did all that water come from and where did it go when you think of the conservation of matter? How is that possible? With all the animals on the, on the ark, how were they fed? Logistically, how did all of that happen? And how was it not filled with thousands of rabbits after that time? Well, what's, what's the deal? What's the story? I mean, there's a number of questions that might surface here. And then when you look at the, at the story of Moses, Moses and the exodus out of Egypt is the central story in the Old Testament. It is the central story that is referred to as, as far as the faithfulness of God. It is a key, key, key part of the journey. And yet there's no evidence in Egyptian history of anyone named Moses or any story about the Exodus. There's no, there's no evidence that there was a Moses outside of Scripture. So how can I trust what I read here when there are some inaccuracies or, or inconsistencies between what I, what I read in the Bible and the external information? Well, first of all, yes, there are plenty of ways that we can struggle with what we see in the Bible and what we see from the world around us and what we've learned from science, etc. Plenty of ways, plenty of conversations and discussions and, and people are going to land in different places, absolutely. But let's not forget that 
The Bible is the most accurate ancient document in the history of humanity. That it is the work that everything else is compared to. That, yes, there are things that we might be able to struggle with, but it is the place that has taught us the most about human history in that part of the world, etc., than any other document because of the number of copies that we have and how trustworthy this document is and how many things over the years have been proven and verified as time has gone on. For example, there's mention in the Old Testament of an empire called the Hittites, and the Bible has been ridiculed for centuries because the nation of Hittites doesn't exist. We know about the Moabites and we know about the Ammonites and, and there's a number of different people around the Israelites, but these Hittites didn't even exist. And so, man, how can you, you know, believe in a book that creates a myth about these Hittites? Until 1906, when in modern-day Turkey, they found underneath the ground the remains of the capital city of the Hittites. And since then, they've found 40 other cities that were part of the Hittite empire. Oh, wait a minute. The Bible was right. And this is one of, of hundreds of these kinds of things. Also in Leviticus, it talks about how to manage, how to handle when people are sick and different kinds of sickness and, and all these laws in Leviticus thousands of years ago about people needing to be isolated for a period of time and clothes that need to be washed from people who have been sick or bed sheets that need to be burned from people who have been sick. And it's just kind of, oh, what's this all about? It's these, these old laws from the, the ancient Bible that doesn't understand anything about science. And yet it was only 100 years ago that we had any understanding about germs and infectious diseases. That just in World War I, if we had paid attention to and known what the Bible had known thousands of years ago, many people would not have died because they just didn't understand that these invisible germs that would be transferred and make people sick. And there's just story after story after story of verification that has happened, and it will continue to happen. People will continue to question the Bible, and the Bible will continue to prove itself. It's been said that the Bible is an anvil on which many hammers have been broken. Now, even as, as we balance it, what's, you know, what is consistent with science and what is not consistent with science, it, here, here's, what, here's what usurps all of that. The Bible was not written as a scientific document. It wasn't even written as a historical document. With as much history as we get out of the Bible, information, dates, people, numbers, it wasn't written to provide us with information. It was written as a love letter to us from our Creator, from our Father in Heaven. It, it wasn't written as a scientific book. It was written as a love letter. Imagine your grandpa sat down with you near the end of his life and just held your hand and looked, looked in your eyes and wanted to explain to you how much he loves you. And I don't know what your relationship with your grandpa is or was, but let's just, for the sake of this, just, just imagine your grandpa was a saint who loved Jesus his whole life and just while holding on to your hands, wanted to, to share with you what it means to live a lifetime following Jesus, and wanted to share with you what he wished he knew when he was in his 20s or 30s or 40s or whatever. If that was a scenario for you, looking into your grandpa's eyes, how concerned would you be 
if your grandpa said something that you knew wasn't quite accurate. So grandpa was telling this story and then said, you know, it was a Tuesday night, da, 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 and you remember that story or heard, heard about that story, and you go, that was a Wednesday. That wasn't a Tuesday. How likely is that to have you discount all that grandpa's saying? Grandpa doesn't know anything. The Bible is not a scientific book. It's a love letter. And the issue is not, is it accurate or is it not? More important than that, the question is, is it true? Is it true? So, for this five-week series, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to read parts of this remarkable book. I'm not going to overdo it. I'm actually going to keep it very bite-sized. I'm going to ask you to read this week. should only take you about 15 or 20 minutes. That's it. 15 or 20 minutes. This week, I want you to start reading the book of John. Over the five weeks, we're going to read through the whole book of John. So I invite you to read John chapters 1 through 5, and additionally, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we'll talk more specifically about why that next week. Six chapters is all that it is. Uh, it's 14. Did I say 18? Four, what, 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 the screen's right. See, it's, it's inaccurate. I was trying to show you the inaccuracy of human error versus the printed word. Okay. So the screen's right. I, I invite you, encourage you to read slowly. Don't just whoop, try to get, get through it. What do you like? What do you not like? What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? What questions do you have? Engage. Engage. Dive in and enjoy this gift. Let me, let me tell you, I, I hope that you come back next week. Okay, next week we're going to go on to the second, a second reason that people don't read the Bible, and that is that it's confusing. There's a lot about reading Scripture that can be just confusing, and we just say, I don't understand, so we set it aside. We're going to address that. We're going to talk about that next week. So I hope you come back. But I just want to give you a gentle warning about next week, okay? I don't warn you very often. That's a terrible word. But I want to give you a gentle warning. I strongly encourage you to not come next week. No, no, that's negative. I strongly encourage you to come next week having read these six chapters. Okay, okay, that's all I'll say. It could take, you could do it right away just to make sure because you might be a little bit afraid. I'm great with that. But we'd love to have you come next week. We'll, we'll continue to dive in. Would you pray with me? Father, I, th I thank you for this time here right now that we give you our attention on, on, on the gift of your word. And then I know some might disagree, some might struggle with some of what we've talked about already. That's okay. The point is, we're giving you our attention. We're giving you, your word, our attention. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us this week to put our attention on you, maybe in a new way, 
maybe to focus in on, on these chapters or some other chapters, God, that you would help us to, to give you more of our attention this week so that we can make memories with you because we have spent time with you. Father, I pray that you would allow that to happen, and as we come back together next week, you would continue to move us forward, breaking through this river that may be stopped up in terms of our Bible reading. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.